Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student, here again to talk about cannabidiol. And I have two students with me. How about some introductions? Who's starting? I'll start. I am Cody. I am a fourth year medical student. And I'm Jake. I'm also a fourth year medical student from Rocky Vista University and a Utah native. Grew up about 20 minutes from here. Good to have you both here. Uh, Cody, I don't know if you've recently introduced yourself kind of a, a, right. a little more like kind of tell us who you are where you go and those kinds of things I think you've heard that in previous podcasts yeah of course yeah so I am from southern Utah originally um, and like Jake a student at Rocky Vista University where I am going in medicine is in into family practice I, I definitely see myself as that outpatient family doc that you see for your everyday needs so it's kind of what I've set my sights on. And I'm just muting sounds, hoping that we don't have a lot more dings and buzzes <laughs> and everything else through the podcast. Now, what part of Southern Utah are you from? St. George. I, I was born in St. George and kind of grew up in Santa Clara, just suburb of St. George. Seems like you and I talked about this before, but I lived in Santa Clara for a while, and Santa Clara is just across the street from the Rocky Vista uh, campus um, near Harmons. Right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's such a gorgeous place. It's a beautiful place to wake up in the morning and walk outside on a, on a fall or a spring day and look up to the those red rocks. Uh, oh my goodness! Just yes. such a gorgeous, gorgeous place. Uh, let's get to cannabidiol. How did this topic come up? Yeah, it's it's always been on my mind for the last few years, just because I see it all over the place. Whether I was doing a rotation in family medicine. Um, in emergency medicine, OBGYN, or even just experiences with my own family and friends. It seems like, you know, the, the new essential oil of Utah, so many of my patients come in and they're just, you know, I'm on CBD oil, I'm using it to treat this, this, and this, and I never really had a good answer when they'd ask me questions about it, what, you know, the, the real research behind it is. That's kind of what piqued my interest in this subject. Yeah, I've actually seen it um, in my own family as well. I, my mom is a triathlete and she runs marathons and bikes and she has like chronic joint pain and she was told that CBD oil could help her get through some of her training sessions. And so she has been on it before. I don't think she's currently taking it because she didn't report much benefit, but, but it's definitely out there in a lot of different um, fields of, of life arthritis, you see people with anxiety, like Jake said, in family medicine, it comes up all the time. So that was something that was interesting to me. I had a call from uh, uh, <laughs> Michael, and all of a sudden Michael's last name is escaping me, and uh, Michael runs a couple of CME programs for uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants, and uh, he wanted me to talk about a topic for an upcoming uh, CME event and the first thing he threw out was when do you refer and I thought that was interesting since we had just tackled that podcast a few weeks ago and I said well, you know maybe the other one we should talk about is what do you say when somebody comes into your office asking about CBD and to me that was very interesting because I, I think we see all of these advertisements in fact Jake I think you looked up how many CBD locations there are just around uh, Utah County where where the Utah State Hospital is located. Yeah, just curious. I jumped on Google, you know, last night and typed in CBD Provo and there's a number of sh local shops here and then a bunch of national ones that will ship it out and 
it seems like you know on their sites they're they're promising that CBD does a whole bunch for you. It can treat you know chest pain, arthritic pain, and I mean anxiety, depression, a bunch of stuff. And so that got me even more curious to kind of dive into the research to see what this really does, what it's about, and if there's any promise to it. Now, true or false, uh, CBD treats coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> that is false. And uh, just one interesting caveat there is the FDA actually just issued a formal warning to a company that was claiming that CBD treated coronavirus. So there's a lot of fun, interesting claims out there. Um, I think we need to make an important distinction, distinction here. Marijuana has been around for a very long time. Marijuana has a number of components within it. One of those is psychoactive, uh, nine delta tetracannabidiol. And then there are some products that are not psychoactive, such as cannabidiol and cannabinol. Cannabinol. Cannabidiol and cannabinol. And I think it's important to make the distinction between THC and cannabidiol. So what is what is a compound that is psychoactive? I think you looked that up, Cody. Yeah, so a psychoactive compound is something that produces a mind-altering effect in, in one way or another. Now, that can change your mood. It can alter your perception of your surroundings. Um, it can affect your cognition, how well you're able to think. And it can change your behavior as well. That is kind of like a, a psychoactive compound in a nutshell. My understanding is that all of the researchers working with uh, either THC or CBD are making that distinction between THC and CBD. One is psychoactive, one is not. And in fact, I think there's a fair amount of data out there about the risks of smoking marijuana and development of schizophrenia. Uh, Jake, I think you came across a couple of those articles. I know that we've talked about those in the past. Anything to comment on that? Yeah, it definitely seems that there are some, there is literature out there that suggests that, uh, especially in your youth, the more you smoke marijuana, it, it's been proposed that the more likely you are to suffer from schizophrenia or from a different disease. Um, I think we've looked at the odds ratios on that, and I think the odds ratios are somewhere around two. Uh, so if you smoke more than uh, smoke marijuana more than 50 times, you roughly double your risk of of developing schizophrenia. Um, I know that there are a number of patients that will come in and talk to us about uh, how they used to be able to smoke marijuana and no longer can because it seems, at least in some of our patients with schizophrenia, to really escalate uh, problems with voices and delusions, hallucinations. And so there, there is something about THC in marijuana that causes that. Now CBD, on the other hand, seems to not have those effects. We, I didn't see anything. I, I looked, uh, I think, at an article about driving. Um, if you're taking uh, CBD, you might swerve a centimeter or so. <laughs> if you have a blood alcohol level of 0 0.05, you'll swerve about two centimeters in the lane and uh, or more than you would if you're just a regular driver. I, I don't know what the texting uh, swerving is, but it seems like this is a molecule that maybe makes people sleepy. Uh, at least I think we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but doesn't necessarily seem to be psychoactive, and that's an important an important distinction that I think we need to make. 
I think the next step we should kind of address is what the AFP has talked about. Now, AFP for those that are AAFP, do you, want to, do you want to describe who the AAFP is and then what they talked about, Cody, what, what their position is? Yeah, of course. So the American Academy of Family Physicians, the AAFP, in July of last year, 2019, they issued a position paper um, addressing um, both medical cannabis use and CBD um, oil use. Um, they, they basically came out saying that they oppose the recreational use of marijuana. They, however, supported the decriminalization of marijuana for personal use. What their official position is, they oppose any substance that might be misused, and marijuana fits under that classification. What they did recognize in this position paper is that there is definitely more room for research in this field, and that there possibly needs to be some some government regulation changes to kind of pursue some legit clinical research in this field. Um, but yeah, part of, part of that position paper, again, was about decriminalizing marijuana use and instead supporting more treatment intervention for people that might be addicted or have become addicted to marijuana. Um, as far as its medical use, they again cited lack of good clinical data to support them backing it for any of these reasons, chronic pain, anxiety, uh, what have you. And which is kind of interesting because there are FDA approved medications with uh, THC in them. And I think those include what, dronabinol, uh, which is FDA indicated for cancer pain, or is it nausea associated with cancer treatment? Um, I think it's the uh, nausea and vomiting associated with the cancer. Uh-huh. And is there, are there other um, FDA approved medications or treatments for uh, that include THC? I don't recall. Seems like we talked about two. I know we talked about dronabinol. It's the, I think Marinol, I think that's the brand name of the dronabinol, and then okay. the Syndros as well. All right. Now there's one other medication though that I think we should talk about a little bit because I think some of our best data comes out of this. We talked about coronavirus not being treated by uh, cannabidiol. We, I think we talked about joint pain. There's some interesting things out there, but nothing that kind of made us go, wow, this data is compelling. We should be talking about using uh, CBD oil for joint pain. There wasn't anything that suggested really anything else. There's some interesting things out there about schizophrenia. We might get to that later. But the reality is there's one really, really great place for use of CBD. And uh, Jake, you found this. Yeah, absolutely. So the FDA um, evaluated four clinical trials, and then they approved uh, this new medication, Epidiolex, which is a, a CBD oil, um, for the use of one condition, and that's, and that's seizures. Um, associated with three different uh, syndromes. One's the Devet syndrome, uh, the other is the tubularis sclerosis uh, complex, and then the third is the Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. I probably slaughtered those names. But yeah, so they, they evaluated these four trials, and you know each of the trials were around 200 patients uh, per trial, and it showed a reduction in seizures 
um, from about, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30% reduction from baseline, which is pretty significant. Now, I read it just a little bit differently. I think I, what I read was uh, 20 to 30% over placebo, right? So Correct, yep. Yeah, so so I saw essentially a 50% reduction in, in seizures in each of these syndromes. And these were patients that had been on uh, two to three antiepileptics, often a vagal nerve stimulator in addition to that, and were having both um, these specific kinds of seizures and fall seizures. They made a distinction between the fall seizures and, and just, I guess, regular everyday seizures. Right. <laughs> um, and I assume a fall seizure is one where somebody actually falls and <laughs> hurts themselves, right? Because that, that's not uh, completely uncommon. And and I was impressed with the response. So when I when I looked at the numbers, um, you know, I, I think the first thing that was interesting was the placebo response because simply being on a placebo seemed to reduce the number of seizures somewhere between 10 to 25 percent in in these populations, and then being on the active uh, comparator seemed to reduce the the seizures by about 50 percent. And it made me think about CBD, uh, what I think you slyly referred to as an essential oil um, earlier. We are uh, in Utah. We are in Utah. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's an essential oil, and I think we should be able to get behind that, right? Um, uh, on a more serious note, though, these numbers were fairly impressive to me, and I think that's why the FDA approved this medication, even though it has the stigma of being associated with uh, nine delta THC, right? The the psychoactive compound in, in marijuana. And this is all recent too. I mean, the first indications the FDA cleared were in 2018, and just in July of 2020 was when they cleared it for that third syndrome, the uh, tubular sclerosis complex. So it seems like these trials are all fairly recent, and this research is is new. And I think that helped because in 2018. The FDA approved the Farm Bill, which uh, descheduled a lot of the products from cannabis. Um, so THC is still, still a scheduled substance, but the Farm Bill allowed us, at least the medical community, to research these more fully just because they descheduled out the CBD component. The Farm Bill. How many pages was the Farm Bill? You know, <laughs> Since it's from the government, probably a lot. <laughs> Now, th this isn't necessarily an easy medication to use. Now, it has just the three indications, right? Lennox-Gastaut, Dravet syndrome, and tuberous sclerosis, right? It has those three, uh, those three indications, but it's not, it's not necessarily an easy medication to use. The, the takeaways I took before I start this medication, I have to check liver function and total billy, right? And if a patient has an elevation in either of those, using CBD seems to increase the probability that they'll have an elevation that goes beyond three times the uh, upper limit, the upper normal limit of our LFTs, and that becomes a problem. And in fact, it looked like um, use with valproic acid, and we talked about valproic acid in a podcast distantly. If you use this medication with valproic acid, you're, you're probably asking for trouble, right? Um, you're going from about a 3% risk of bumping enzymes uh, to about a 13% risk of bumping enzymes. And it seems like if you're going to use this in conjunction with any medications, probably not valproic acid, probably not clobazam. And if you can get rid of those two, you still need to watch at the one, three, and six-month marks at least 
for elevation in enzymes. Now, they did make the comment that usually enzyme elevations, uh, hepatocellular injury tends to happen within the first two, two months, but that wasn't exclusively the case. And I didn't see the report on whether that was a case that emerged with the addition of Depakote or one of the other potentially damaging uh, molecules. But I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, and just going along that vein, I thought when I first, you know, CBD started hearing about it, if if my patients want to be on it or not, you know, I don't really care. It's not really, you know, affecting the way I, I'm, I'm treating patients. But then kind of diving deeper into it, it seems like it has a CYP2C9 inhibitor, um, meaning it interacts a lot with different medications. And then it does have a decent side effect profile where it can cause skin rashes, weight loss, decreased appetite, diarrhea, anemia. Um, not, a lot of it's not well-researched, but it is definitely in the literature to, to cause some of these reactions. And then, like you said, kind of the more liver problems. Yeah, it made, it made me think that if I had somebody who, if I were in a primary care setting, if I had somebody come in who had an unexplained anemia or an unexplained GI problem, one of the first things I would do is is ask about any um, essential oils or, <laughs> or uh, OTC, cannabidiol, CBD oil. Right. Um, I was also impressed with the comments in this about suicide monitoring. Now, this isn't a boxed warning. With antidepressants, we have a boxed warning regarding the risk of uh, increased suicidal ideation. Antiepileptics also seem to increase the risk of suicide. There's a lot of data out there about that. There are summary articles about that, meta-analysis about that, and the FDA used that information and stuck that into um, the package insert, but I didn't see specific information about increased risks of suicidality in patients taking CBD itself. Did you see any data along those lines? No, and I specifically looked for that. I didn't see any studies looking at that specifically. Just what I read was the, the kind of pool data collected from all the anti-epileptics, just like you mentioned, has, you know, increased the suicidal ideation, but nothing in particular with CBD. And, and again, that suicide risk might impart, there's a suicide risk associated with just having a, a chronic seizure disorder, if I understand correctly. Right. And um, there's, my, my, my understanding was somewhat different than what's in the FDA package insert. My understanding was that untreated, untreated, seizure disorders had a higher risk of suicidality than treated seizure disorders, but there seems to be uh, something about the use of antiepileptics that increases that risk. I think we're aware um, in psychiatry that there's an overlap between epilepsy and um, some of our mental illnesses that we treat, and sometimes we have to be very careful that we're treating the right diagnosis with an antiepileptic, or I think we're we're um, creating some risk for our patients that we, we need to be aware of. Um, so not boxed, but clearly a, a warning, right? The last thing that I took away from this is, hey, if you're using CBD as a treatment for seizures, don't stop it suddenly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Apparently withdrawal seizures might be a risk. I didn't see specific data about withdrawal seizures from CBD, but it does make some sort of sense, and it makes me wonder if somebody, again, came into my... Uh, clinic and said, hey, I had a, a seizure for the first time ever, one of the things I might ask is, did you stop uh, CBD oil suddenly? Yeah, it seems like it takes about four weeks, at least the research that I was reading, uh, from baseline about four weeks to really kick into its peak. 
Um, so I mean that would make total sense that if you stop it early, you could you could see the withdrawal seizures or stop it later once you've had more time on the medication. Right, right. Um, you you mentioned metabolism. I don't think we can talk about metabolism well without everybody turning off their podcast here. <laughs> Suffice to say that um, one of the most interesting comments I've ever seen in metabolism is in this package insert where it says 1A2 and 2B6 could be inhibited or induced by CBD. <laughs> and um, I have to admit I was left scratching my head. Yeah, I feel like there just needs to be more research, more known about it. I mean, me and Cody were talking before this, just kind of what I found in one research paper versus what he found. It seems like there's a lot of controversial or contradictory stuff. Um, so I, I just think the more research is going to tell us more about the metabolism, how it works, and what, what we can use it for. It did look like the way you took this mattered a lot. If you If you have a high-calorie, high-fat diet, your area under the curve goes up, uh, what, fourfold? Your C-max goes up fivefold. That's a huge difference. So you might also find uh, patients who come in to talk to you about CBD, the way they take CBD might matter as well. Right? I take it with dinner. I take it in the you know, middle of the day. I usually skip lunch. I take CBD instead of lunch. It helps me, you know, whatever. Yeah. It might might be a different uh, kind of outcome, more right. somnolence perhaps. Absolutely, and it seems like you know taking it with milk or you know a lot of those foods increases that absorption, like you said. One other Quite thing, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, no, you're fine. I was going to say one other thing I was going to mention is that we talked a little bit about the difference between uh, CBD and THC. Now THC has activity at both the CB1 and CB2 receptors, and I'm not going to dive into that a lot more. But one of the things that was looked at early was activity on the CBD, I believe the CBD1, but I could, I could have this backwards, receptor with a medication called Remonibant. And this is a medication that was used for, uh, to treat obesity. It had a temporary approval in, the, uh, in Europe, and the problem associated with it was that there was this spike in suicidal thinking and suicidal ideation. I don't know about actual suicides, but this is the, the difference between CBD and THC, I mean, I think that makes some sort of sense. So the CBD discussion was about epilepsy and anti-epileptics uh, creating the suicide uh, risk, whereas it looks like THC molecules that worked act, work actively on the CBD receptors can affect suicidality in a very different pathway in a different way. And, and again, just to clarify, CBD does not bind to the CB1 or CB2 receptors. THC does CBD. D does not. Um, possible fetal harm in animal models. Um, if you know somebody that's pregnant and taking CBD, refer them to the pregnancy register. <laughs> does that sound about right? Absolutely. Other things that you took away from Epidiolex? Um, I, th I feel like it, we're going to see it more in terms of these this research is recent 2018 2019 and now 2020 is the most recent um, indication so I know there's several trials underway with Epidiolex so we'll kind of see where it goes are those trials that look at other seizure syndromes that are not responding well? correct they're doing one just kind of overall in children with epilepsy regardless of the disorder just to see if they can bring it down and so we'll kind of see how that clinical trial pans out that's ongoing now I think it's always exciting to find a new anti-epileptic. Epilepsy is so difficult to treat, and uh, uh, I once had a, 
a neurologist I respect a great deal who told me life is just one big seizure. <laughs> um, but those seizures can certainly be disruptive to function, right? Hold down yep. a job, do things you want to do. One other thing that I thought was interesting is because of the association with THC, which is uh, a substance that people tend to crave and misuse, right? Absolutely. CBD, there was, a f there was data inside the package insert that spoke to reward behavior. And it mentioned two scales I had never heard of before. I think if you've listened to very many of the podcasts, you'll have heard us talk about things like the PHQ-9, the Beck Depression Inventory, the Hospital um, Anxiety and Depression Scale, which I think is the one you talked about yep. uh, not long ago, Jake. Uh, two, two scales that were introduced to me here. One is the Drug Liking Scale. And essentially, they ask a question, how much do you like this drug? <laughs> and if it was zero, the person didn't like the drug. If it was 50, and it was a visual analog scale. So 50 is, yeah, I neither like or dislike this, this medication. And 100 is, man, I really like this. <laughs> and uh, apparently, on the drug liking scale, CBD does not set off alarms. And there's another scale. Uh, called the Take Drug Again scale, another visual analog scale. And the question is, would you take the drug you just took again if given the opportunity? And again, it's zero, definitely not. 50, yeah. And 100, I definitely would. And it, again, this is a, a medication that doesn't, it doesn't set off alarm bells. Um, so I think there's a lot of, uh, it, we've talked in the past about wanting to avoid another opioid crisis by telling people that something is safe that isn't. Um, but this is research. This, this looks to be more than a footnote in an editorial that gets recited thousands of times, right? This looks like it has non-addictive properties. And it's very different than something like uh, synthetic THC or alprazolam, which um, apparently are well known for their high scores on these two scales. <laughs> Absolutely. And apparently there's not a withdrawal syndrome associated with this. Now, I, I don't understand that completely because in the package insert, a rapid withdrawal could cause a, a, a seizure, apparently. Again, a, the data on that is not as clear to me. But the kinds of withdrawal syndromes that we might see were craving, intense craving and, and dysphoria, it doesn't appear to have those kinds of syndromes that we see in addiction either. Where are, are, where are we at next? I just, I just feel like it's, it's good to say what it's used for, like we talked about for those three things, and then what it's not. There's been a lot of research out there, uh, specifically looking at you know arthritis, uh, schizophrenia, anxiety, uh, cancer pain, uh, post you know cancer anorexia, and uh, cachexia, um, and a lot of this just the research doesn't show that it that it works. I mean, in the in one with schizophrenia, there was one uh, meta-analysis where they looked at three placebo <laughs> clinical trials, and it just, you know, it, it didn't pan out. So, so I'm going to back up there. They didn't look at three trials. They looked at 3,829 <laughs> studies, and yes. after they eliminated studies that were duplicates, uh, couldn't explain the different arms, didn't have good blinding, and so forth, they were left with three trials. Yes. <laughs> so after they kind of whittled that down to three quality trials, it didn't show, uh, you know, they, they, they looked at it. One study was with monotherapy and then two was an adjunct thrown on top of typical uh, uh, schizophrenia treatments. 
and the placebo versus the CBD didn't show st statistical significance. So, so it said that, but then it also said that it, you're talking about the add-on studies, right? So right. The, there's two add-on studies, one direct comparator to an active agent. The add-on studies, I, I thought that the meta-analysis kind of went back and forth because it talked about maybe there's an effect for positive symptoms, a positive effect on positive symptoms, maybe not. But with so few studies and so little data, we're not going there yet, right? Right, yeah, and that's a better accurate description. It, it just seems like, yeah, the research is so back and forth whether they want to, you know, induce it or not just because there, there hasn't been too many studies that are quality on this. I also was interested in the Lukey study, which was cited in, so Capelli was the, the, that was the author, the lead author on the meta-analysis. He referenced the Lukey study as the L-E-W-E-K-E -E in 2012 as the one study that looked at schizophrenia against an active comparator. Now this, this study kind of, I, I just sit back and I go, huh, now what do I do? Because, so, so emissile pride, is a, an antipsychotic that's available in Europe but not available in the United States. And I can't figure out why it's not available in the United States. If one of you guys has a magic Google button that tells you that, I think I've tried to look and I, I thought that maybe there just weren't enough studies where it's separated from placebo. But then you look at the data, there was a recent meta-analysis that said that maybe our best antipsychotic not named clozapine is amisulpride. Hmm. And in this head-to-head -head study, there wasn't a difference between CBD and a missile, um, a missile pride. And so I, I don't know what to make of this, right? It's a medication that's not approved in the United States for some reason that's not entirely clear to me and might be our most potent antipsychotic medication. And CBD does well head to head. <laughs> um, it makes me think we need to do more research on head to head trials with CBD. And I'm hoping that those do come out. I think, I think that would be one of the very fascinating, uh, additions to our armamentarium. We're stuck still in dopamine blockade as our primary strategy for treatment of schizophrenia. Maybe TAR1 inhibitors, TAAR-1 inhibitors, will have some sort of uh, chance to treat schizophrenia, but really we're very limited in the types of treatments we have. We have we're kind of a one-trick pony, so to speak, in terms of <laughs> uh, treatments for schizophrenia, and, and so anything that has potential, I, I'm hoping to hear more about. What next? What else is what else have we not addressed with this podcast? I guess from my my perspective, my standpoint as a future primary care physician, a future family doc, I I don't foresee myself seeing a lot of these seizure patients, right? I'm going to see a lot of the people from the community that are taking it for what they hear it's good for versus what we see in the data which is really inconclusive, right? So my, my thoughts as, a, as their doctor is what harm can this do, right? And we've kind of discussed some of these things, right, that, that can happen. Um, primarily, it sounds like uh, GI discomfort, diarrhea. Um, there's some other anecdotal evidence for headaches and dizziness. And kind of that, that worries me a little bit with the issue with clotting and, and maybe interacting with some of the blood thinners. So if people are getting dizzy on this and falling, it can potentially be dangerous. So from my perspective, I think more caution for healthy individuals that 
that don't seem to have a need for it. Drug-drug interactions, I think, are concerning with this medication. I think they're very, it, it seems like almost random. Yeah. Um, and so I, I agree. The other thing that I keep going back to is, depending on how much somebody is taking, uh, the liver effects, the hepatotoxicity, seem to be additive, or, or dose-related at least. So uh, I think there's a lot there that you can worry about when somebody is starting to have symptoms that are otherwise unexplained. I think the other thing that uh, came across our desk in terms of risk to our patients is that CBD oil is not a regulated medication, right? Where Epidiolex, which is CBD, is produced in a lab, it has to meet certain requirements by the FDA to continue production and be used as a treatment. The CDC sent out a press release specifically commenting on Utah that you came across. Is that right? Yeah, so Utah, it's fun. Um, they recognized 50 case reports of poisonings in Utah uh, to do with CBD, not, not anything to do with THC. But when people would go and buy CBD products, 50 people uh, were poisoned from them and some had severe bleeding um, disorders and kind of looking back into it and going back into the, the poisoning uh, in particular, with these patients, they found that a lot of them had spice or kind of these synthetic uh, THC products mixed in. And so... Well, there was also some uh, contamination in the clotting or in the bleeding disorders with um, the uh, anticoagulant found in rat poison. Right. Right. So, so the contaminants in CBD, I think, are as concerning as CBD itself, probably more so. Exactly. Uh, I think we're probably near the end of this. Take-homes, last thoughts. I'd say from my perspective, definitely, I I wouldn't waste my money on it right now. As a healthy person, just living my life, I, I mean, I see a lot of people that want to try it for things. I would say no at this point. Save your money. Save your money, yeah. <laughs> it is very expensive. <laughs> Looking at, you know, going through uh, Google and, and finding the stores that sell it, it, it is pricey, and insurance obviously does not cover it. Um, and I, I guess my take-home point would be it's it's great for what it's indicated for. The FDA has approved it in three particular conditions, and it really seems to work in those conditions. In terms of all the other reasons that you might hear about taking it, just well-being, arthritis, uh, pain, all that, it just, the research isn't there. It, it, it's either contradictory or it's just we don't have enough of it to, to justify using it against our normal gold standards of treatment. And I think my take home is you got to talk to your patients. Right? You have to ask them what over-the-counter substances what essential oils are you using? <laughs> um, what, what kinds of things are there out there? And then being aware of what the potential problems are. I think we're very fortunate in a sense that we have, uh, <laughs> we have an FDA-approved cannabidiol treatment called... <laughs> the Epidiolex? Epidiolex. Yes. We hope we're saying that right, by the way. Yes. <laughs> Epidiolex. We're very fortunate that we have an FDA-approved treatment, Epidiolex, which has done a lot of the legwork looking at toxicity and things that we might be able to expect from this medication so that we know when our patients are taking CBD what might happen. We don't usually have that with other other substances that our patients take that are 
uh, not FDA approved and not, that don't go through the same rigorous kinds of production methods that are required of FDA approved substances. So, so again, my take home is talk to your patients about what they're taking and make sure that you're getting a good list of, of non-prescribed substances in addition to prescribed substances. Guys, thank you very much. Uh, very, very enjoyable discussion. And on that note, team out. Team out.